You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you all for coming. This is like, I mean, it's actually like a really great crowd. I'm like really excited about this, and it feels really conversational. It's really what I was hoping for tonight. So, um, anyway, um, let me uh, let me introduce what we're doing here um, in this um, four week series that's extended over eight weeks because it's. What is it? Fortnightly? It's fortnightly. We're reading fortnightly for this, for this series. Uh, the class we're calling Incarnation and Excarnation. Now, you may have been a little confused by that title, um, but what we're trying to point out is that, is that, okay, so what this course is about is we're looking at the vision and values of resurrection in the light of the Incarnation. And so the Incarnation, we think, elicits certain values from us, certain ways. Hey, we got more people. Awesome. Um, we need another table. That's what you got to do. we got to do it. I'm going to keep going, though, Sean. Hey, somebody open those. Will somebody open those things? Okay, well, well like, I don't know. They're not, getting dis- they're not getting distributed. People need to eat them. You don't eat gluten, though, so I mean, forget about you. <laughs> I, I brought nothing for you. Um, we think that the incarnation is not only like a doctrine of the faith that we believe, but it also shows us how to live. And so it informs the values we have at resurrection. And we also think it has certain kinds of, for lack of a better word, anti-values that are associated with it. Many of which are perniciously dominant in our culture. And so um, we might call these, um, these kinds of values excarnations. They are essentially values that are disembodied, that devalue the material and the bodily. Uh, and so they they are excarnate in that sense. Um, they are not values that value um, embodiment and incarnation, which is completely central to our faith. Our faith is so illuminated and established by the incarnation that it has been, and I think with some justification, can be called the religion of the incarnation. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing in this course. We're just looking at, okay, like our vision is life together in the goodness of God. Our values are rooted, sacred kingdom and community. Like if those come from the incarnation, how do they come from the incarnation? And where does that sort of point us to in our life together um, as a church? Does that make sense? Yes. Any questions about that? Hey. Hey. More people. Love it. The usual suspects. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, we're we're, look, we're looking at these values that we have as a church, rooted, sacred, kingdom, and community, and we're also looking at their opposites. What are, what do they? If, if these are our values as, as a church, and these are inflected by the incarnation, what are the opposite of those, and how do we resist those as a church? Um, so tonight we're going to be looking at that first value, rooted, um, and I, I'm going to. You know, there's all kinds of ways I could have gone with this. There's like an infinite number of ways I could have gone. But I'm just going to take us into sort of three topics. Um, one of them is that um, I think that the incarnation roots us in three ways. First, it roots us in the gospel. It roots us among a particular people or in a particular people. And then it roots us in a particular place. Okay? So, to repeat real quick where we're going tonight. It roots us, the incarnation roots us in the gospel. It roots us among a particular people or in a particular people. I think those are both appropriate ways of expressing it. And it roots us in a particular place. So, um, to start with, 
What does it mean to be rooted and established in the gospel, as Paul says it, right? Um, What does that mean? Well, I think the first thing that it means is that it's something that comes from outside of ourselves and does something. The gospel is something that comes from outside of ourselves and does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. So in our primordial history in Adam, we have fallen into sin, which is at its root a condition of ingratitude and slavery and rebellion. Like basically we are essentially constituted against God. We do not want the things that God wants for us. We don't like kingdom purposes. We like to build kingdoms for ourselves. So we don't want what God wants. Um, Alexander Shmemon, who's a Russian priest that Sean and I are big fans of, he puts it like this. I love this line. It's so beautiful. The only real fall of man is his non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. So Eucharist, Eucharisto means to give thanks, right? So when we do the Eucharist, what are we doing? We're giving thanks. We're giving thanks to God for coming among us, for giving himself to us as a gift, to giving us new and divine life that we might have life in ourselves and not be in a perpetual passage into death. Um, that's what we're giving thanks. That's what we do. So, so what Shmemon says is the only real fall of man is that we have become non-Eucharistic in our being and that we live in a non-Eucharistic world. We have made a world that is non-Eucharistic. We've made of ourselves an ungrateful people and we live in an ungracious world. We live in a world that we have made ungracious. That's on us. So we had a vocation. Our original vocation, Shmemon says, was to be priests. And we've, we've been talking about this in this sermon series. So how many of you remember, what, is it, what does it mean to be a priest in the Bible? We've talked about this a couple of times. It's a pop quiz, you know. <laughs> I like to bring this. What does it mean to be a priest? Mediator. A mediator. Very good. Okay. So, yeah, it's one who sort of stands in the gap. There are two, as you might call them, spaces in the cosmos. There's heaven and earth. Heaven is the place where God dwells. It's not like a point on the, cosmo, on the cosmic map that you can point to. It's everywhere. There is no place where God is not. Um, Karl Barth says it like this. There is no place that God is not, but that does not mean God is nowhere. Right? He's everywhere. Right? Um, he, is, he is equidistant from every point in the cosmos, which means he is personally present to every point in the cosmos. But that space, that doesn't quite line up linearly to the spaces in which we inhabit, is God's space, heaven. Right? The, the throne room of God. And then there's earth, the place that, where we live. And our vocation, what we were set up to do as image bearers, as the people who bear the image of God, is to mediate between heaven and earth. We're supposed to take who God is and reflect it down to the creation and say, like, here's who God is. Creation, now join with us in worshiping this person, God. And then to return the creation back to God, to mediate the creation back to God in a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. Like we say in our Eucharistic liturgy. That that's what we, we're, we are actually being remade into priests, right? When we are doing this work together, this Eucharistic liturgy together, we're becoming priests again. We're becoming people who actually have that vocation again attached to us. We're, we're returning the creation back to God in a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. That's what we were set up to do. That was what we were supposed to be. That's how God made us. And when we, when we rebelled against him, when we turned away from him, which is what Genesis 3, sort of, you know, Genesis 3 through 11, honestly, um, narrates to us in Scripture. Um, 
what we are essentially doing is becoming non-Eucharistic beings, non-priestly beings, um, and in a, in a um, non-Eucharistic world. Um, so that's the problem, right? We are, we are no longer Eucharistic beings. We are no longer serving in this role as mediators between heaven and earth. So what does God do? Does he let us just go on sinking into non-being and death? No, but God, right? But God would not let that be so. So what does he do? There's this incredible drama that spans the whole of the Old Testament that concerns a people and a place. Who does he call? Who does he call first? He calls Abraham. What does he say to Abraham? I will make you a father of nations. I will make you a father of nations. Right there. What is God's concern? Is God's concern Israel? Is God's concern his elect people, the single people that he calls to, to serve as a vocation, to serve in the vocation as priests to the world? Is that, is that what God's concern is with Abraham? No. No. Many nations. Right there. Old Testament hope is hope for the world. That's what Walter Zimmerle says, a uh, great Old Testament scholar. He says, right from the very beginning, right from the get-go with Abraham, the concern is the nations. Right the way through Israel. Read Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is God covenanting with a single nation for the sake of the world. Right? I've got this quote here from, um, from Craig Bartholomew. He says, uh, Isaiah 19, 18-24 contains a remarkable vision of Egypt and Assyria being included among God's people. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and it will be used by both Egyptians en route to Assyria and Assyrians en route to Egypt. Indeed, they will worship together. That highway, as we noted in our discussion of Abraham, already existed. Let's pause there. In the time of Abraham, this highway between Egypt and Assyria, who were bitter enemies, already existed. Which means that God's purpose for it was to unite all people in this kingdom of priests. That God makes in Israel for the sake of the nations. It's God's intention to redeem all nations from the very outset in the Old Testament. That is like basic. So it's not, so if you read the Old Testament, you read it wrongly if you see it as fundamentally about Israel. It's fundamentally about the reconciliation of all things to himself and all people to himself. So this vocation, you can see, if you read Deuteronomy, what does God say about Israel? He says, I did not choose you because you were the greatest of nations. In fact, you're the least. I chose you to make my glory manifest to the nations. That's why God chooses Israel. God chooses the least, the weak, people who are suffering people, people who are poor people, you know, people who don't have anything that, like, shines about them, right? Anything that anyone would look at in the world and say, like, Hey, uh, like you're, you're like doing well for yourself, you know, like you've got it going on. God doesn't choose those people. God chooses the people to manifest his purposes who are otherwise than that, right? Who are basically at the bottom of the barrel. Um, as an aside, this is why the Lord of the Rings is so powerful, you know, as a book. It's like, who does, who gets chosen to bear the ring? Little hobbits, right? People who have nothing. They like they got nothing. They got the Shire. It's a nice little place, but it's basically a little out of the way, nowhere land. It's kind of like Nazareth, you know. Anyway, um, that's um, it's neither here nor there. 
It's in Middle Earth. <laughs> it's in Middle Earth. <laughs> All right, so to end this quote from, from Craig Bartholomew, here's what he says. Places and nations will not be obliterated, but will become what Yahweh always intended them to be. Places and nations will not be obliterated, but will become what Yahweh always intended them to be. In other words, God intends to call all the nations back to himself as a kingdom of priests. What do we read about in 1 Peter? What is the church? Holy nation. Royal royal priesthood. priesthood. Yeah. Yeah. So the first fruit, the church is the first fruits of this kingdom that is being established. Wherein all people will be reconciled to God. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, as Revelation says, right? Will be called back to God to serve in this vocation as priests, mediating God to creation and creation back to God. And it will look very different than it looked in Eden, right? I mean, what does Revelation 21 and 22 tell us about it? It's like all of human culture gets included in the mix. You know, everything good and true and beautiful that human beings have produced, it's all there. Right? That's part of that priestly vocation now, to take those things that we have added to nature, right? to have added to creation, and to bring those as well back as our gifts to God. It's beautiful stuff. What God makes of the world is better than what would have been made without sin. That doesn't make sin necessary to the goodness of the world. But it does say that God can use even sin to transform humanity back into an even richer version of itself than it would have been otherwise. Okay. Would Get you back to this. That one more time. Can you remember yes. what you just said? What I don't you know. <laughs> I'm try again. I'm try again. Um, okay. So what I said was, if you look at what happens in Revelation 21 and 22, all of the things that humanity has added to the creation, all of the culture that human beings have made, everything good and true and beautiful gets included in that offering, that sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise that humanity offers back to God, and. Um, and, and so what's remarkable then is that God uses even sin, transforms human sinfulness to make the gift even more profound, even more beautiful than it would have been otherwise, even a richer offering than it would have been otherwise. And that doesn't make sin necessary, but it does say that God can take horrible things, atrocities, and make something that's even more beautiful out of them. In other words, he can... He can, um, his, you know, Sam Ganji says it in Lord of the Rings, he can make everything sad come untrue. Yeah. Well, Calvin said that God uses the evil acts of wicked men to accomplish his righteous purpose. Yes, he does. So that's yes, does. related to what you're saying. And that's also Romans 8, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Story of Joseph. Yeah. Okay. All right. Getting back to the central line of this story. Israel is called in the midst of this mess that humanity has made for itself, right? Um, to, 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 again, embody that vocation as a kingdom of priests um, to show the world what God intends for the world to be, right? To show humanity what, what God intends for humanity to be. Um, but they also refuse this vocation from the very beginning. I mean, they're called stubborn, stiff-necked people. They, they always refuse to listen to what God is telling them to. They don't trust God. Um, Even when they seemingly trust God, they misunderstand his intention, even though he tells them very clearly what his intention is. And when they get confused and they they begin to think, oh, yeah, we are are an elect nation. Therefore, there must be something really awesome about us, you know, that we are this elect nation. No, 
It's like, you're missing the point. I chose you because you're weak and miserable and, and like you've been conquered by every single passing tribe. And I'm going to make a kingdom of priests out of you to show the rest of the world what it looks like when they worship Yahweh. Right? They don't do it. Over and over and over again, they failed to do this. There's all of these stories. There's the wilderness wanderings. There's the, uh, the, the establishment of Israel in the Canaanite lands, which is a dark series of passages. Sometime, not tonight, we can talk about. Um, but, um, but they fail to even carry out God's purposes there, right? Um, they fail to carry out God's purposes in the temple. They fail to carry out God's purposes among the rest of the nations. They are just dramatic failures. And what, what happens over time is that faithful Israelites come to realize, we can't do this. Like, somehow we too are locked in the sin of Adam. We can't do it. You know? That's what Paul says in Romans 3, right? He says, he says that Israel was consigned to sin, just like the rest of the Gentiles with Adam. And that's a real problem because these are the people that God has called. So what's God going to do? God's covenanted with these people. He has sworn by himself that he will make them a kingdom of priests. Is God then going to, you know, roll out his plan B? This didn't work, so we need to try something different. Now I'll become incarnate. No. No. I'm going to stick with plan A. Let God be true and every other man a liar, right? That's Romans 3 again, right? Great stuff from Paul. And so this is really important here. By the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the covenant will be fulfilled. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I'm making this point because there is a big conversation in the Biblical Studies Guild about what this word that I'm translating faithfulness means. I think it does not make any sense at all in this passage unless we say that what Jesus Christ does, he does to fulfill his vocation in Israel... And he does it on our behalf. And this is not something that we are doing in order to get included in this. This is something Jesus is doing for us. In other words, if you look at, let's say, the ESV, the way that this is translated is, the, is our faith in Jesus Christ that saves us, that, that fulfills this vocation. No, it is not a different plan that before it was going to be by law and now it's going to be by faith. No. From the beginning, from the get-go with Abraham, Abraham had faith in the purposes of God and it was credited him as righteousness. It's going to be the same way with us. It's all about what God is doing. God is doing this on our behalf. The gospel is news. It's something that transforms the situation. It doesn't have anything to do with us. It is all about what God is doing on our behalf. Bible verse. Romans, Romans 3, I think 21 and 22, I think. Um, I will go back and, and uh, look at that and email you later. Okay. But here's the thing about the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, it doesn't look much like what Israel is expecting. Israel, because Israel believes we are an elect people, there's something really awesome about us that God loves, and so he's going to rescue us. He's going to give us back our land. He's going to give us back our government. He's going to give us back all the privileges that we had. And God says, you're missing the point again. The point is that Abraham would have a family of many, many nations, that his descendants would number like the stars, right? And so what has to happen in order for that to happen? In order for there to be a faithful covenant partner that can fulfill that aspect of the covenant and not just get Israel's land back, not just get Israel's like autonomy back. It's a question. Rephrase the question. 
Okay, what has to happen in order for that aspect of the covenant, that Abraham would have a family of many nations, not just that Israel would get its land back, what has to happen in order for that cosmic dimension of the covenant to take shape? For Abraham to be a blessing to many nations? For Abraham to have a family that encompasses many nations. Oh, well, then it, like, it has to be more than just blood, right? I mean, people have to come to God and be connected to him by more than just ethnicity. I don't know what you're going for. That's good. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's a nice start. I like that. <laughs> yes. Ethnicity gets, gets, is going to get deprioritized. Yes. The covenant has to directly be opened up from the mouth of God to the, the rest of the world. And how's that going to happen? Is that the Great Commission? Is that, is that, is that where that comes in? Because it did come from the mouth of God, the mouth yeah. of Christ. Okay, so As so ascending. can can you open up that statement a little bit? What what would what what is um, what has to be true in order for that statement to come from the mouth of God? That the incarnation is God. Yes, yes. That Jesus Christ is not only a faithful prophet in the line and the lineage of faithful prophets of Israel, but that he is in fact the very person of God in a body. This is God blazing forth in his glory on the earth. This is not another man who is like the Maccabeans or something, kicking out the Greeks out of, or the Romans out of the, out of, uh, the land of Israel, you know, reestablishing his government. No, this is like God coming in, becoming the faithful covenant partner, and in so doing, making it possible for the Gentiles to be included. Now, if you read the Gospels, it's really cool to look out for this theme. Like, look for like, echoes of the story of Israel and what Jesus is doing. Where does he go? Who does he talk to? Like, what are the things that he says? And then, like, just think about, like, where else have I seen language like this before? Almost in every case... The, the Gospels are true history, but they're also stylized history. And so in the sense that the, the language that they use, that the apostles use to describe what's happening in Jesus' life is language that they've drawn by, by, by ruminating and meditating on the language of the Old Testament. So that when they speak, it's like they're just, in, they're just saying, oh, here's what this event meant. Here's what it meant, and here's what it fulfilled. Here's where it was prefigured before. If you read it in that lens, you will suddenly discover that everything that Israel did wrong, Jesus is doing right. right? Jesus, what's the first thing that Jesus does after his baptism? He goes out in the wilderness. Where else have we seen wilderness before? The Exodus. The Exodus. What does Israel do when they go out on Exodus? Idolatry? Immediately, idolatry? What else? They whine, they grumble. Yeah, absolutely. They don't have enough food. Where am I going to get food? I hate this food that you're giving me from heaven, like completely, like ostensibly magically. Like I'm getting this food every single day that fills me up. I hate it. Give us something else. So God's like, okay, here's quail. (laughs) I hate it. This quail tastes horrible. It's so boring. Right. So Israel's grumbling. Israel's idolatrous. Israel is murderous. Israel is adulterous. 
Israel like basically gives in to every temptation that presents itself to them. What does Jesus do when he goes out to the wilderness? Fasts. He fasts. What else happens? He's he tempted. Temptation. Who tempts him? Satan himself. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what's happening there. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if the, the gospel writers might be saying something about the real sources of temptation. It's not these things that we think are the true sources of temptation. Hunger, sexual desire, things like this. Maybe it's powers and principalities. Maybe it's the enemy. Maybe that's who our real enemy is. Maybe that's what it looks like. Maybe what it looks like to do genuine combat with evil is not to do combat against actual people, but against who, are, who bear the image of God, but to do battle against the powers and principalities. Isn't that what Paul says? So in Jesus, we see Israel's vocation brought into like the most amazing illumination. Right? The incarnation of the Son of God. We see Israel's vocation highlighted. We see the ways in which Israel failed, spotlighted. We see the Son of God doing it right where Israel did it wrong. We see him putting to rights what Israel did wrong. We see him embodying genuine humanity. What Israel was supposed to do, Jesus is doing it now. He's showing what it looks like to be a true priest. So check this out. I've got a quote here from, um, from uh, Thomas Torrance, if I can find it. Yeah. So Torrance sees the human life of Jesus as one of wrestling with the nature he had, made, he had made his own in order to bend it back into obedience and love to God. Living in sinful human nature, Jesus wrestles with it with strong crying and tears, and through his life of prayer and unbroken obedience to the Father, converts it back to him. He grows up in wisdom and knowledge of God, replacing the disobedience of Adam with his own human life of perfect righteousness. And in a life of, of increasing solidarity with sinners, Jesus enters more and more into their condition, taking their sin and sickness on himself in order to undo them by his purity and offer in exchange his own life and righteousness. Do you hear that? I love this language. Jesus takes on our nature as its creator, right? Because he's both God and man. He's the theandric man, as the Orthodox tradition loves to say. He's the man who is both God, theos, and man, andros. He's both of those things together. As the creator of humanity, he's taking on a human person. And so in so doing, because he's the creator of humanity, also taking on humanity. And he's bending it back into shape. He's sanctifying it with his own perfect obedience to the Father. I like the image of wrestling in that too, considering yeah. the root of Absolutely. Israel. Absolutely. And that throws us all the way back to Jacob, doesn't it? Jacob wrestling with God. And losing, right? Is, is that quote from a book? Hmm? Oh, yeah, that's okay. from, uh, so Torrance, um, Torrance was a theology professor in Edinburgh, and um, he, like, he never, he died before he wrote his systematic theology, as it were, and so um, there's a guy named Robert Walker who edited um, his lectures on the Incarnation and the Atonement that had been published by InterVarsity Press in 2008, 
curious. Um, and they're called Incarnation and, and uh, Atonement. And they are very, very difficult. So I don't know if I would recommend them. But that quote I thought I was like just gorgeous. Quote. Maybe you could put that up somewhere. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I like that. Like <laughs> 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 All right. What was the name of the specific publisher? <laughs> University Press. It's the guy at... The, no, I'll just keep going. Let's <laughs> <laughs> chase that around. <laughs> All right. Jesus united himself to us in his humanity. And by faith in the Messiah, and by baptism, it's important, that's what the scripture says, that in baptism we are united to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So by faith and by baptism... We are incorporated into his humanity. So he unites himself to us in his humanity. By faith and baptism, we are united into his humanity. And in his humanity, we're also united to his deity. And we have new divine life in us. We are given a new vocation. A new vocation to be the images of Christ now, who is the perfect image of the Father. So now our priesthood depends upon the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus perfectly mediates between heaven and earth. And by being united to him, we participate in his one perfect, once-for-all sacrifice. That's our vocation now. That's what it means for us to be rooted in the gospel, is to participate in that vocation. To be priests of the Lord Jesus Christ to the world. And to bring the world back to God. To take responsibility for the world. To bring it back to God in the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. To pour ourselves out like Jesus poured himself out. On behalf of particular people... In particular places. I want to get there next. What time is it? 7.37. I got plenty of time. Which is amazing. I would love to. Any questions and thoughts? Any contradictions? Are you hit particular people in places today or in later weeks? I'm about to turn to... Because remember I said we're going three places tonight. Okay. Rooted in the gospel, rooted in the particular people, and rooted in a particular place. Okay, I wasn't... Didn't hear what you said tonight. I thought it might be for the next three Next days. week, Sean's going to do sacred. I'm going to keep going. Okay. <laughs> Jonathan, what strikes me about that is that being rooted in the gospel first means dealing with the reality of who you are. Before it means a lot of, I've heard a lot, being rooted in the gospel might sound like going and doing something out in the world mm. for the sake of the gospel. It sounds like what you're suggesting means to be rooted in the gospel begins with realizing who you already who you are yeah. before what you do. Oh, man. There's so much richness there. I'm going to start with this one point. So evangelicals, of which I am one, I'm not excluding myself Amen. from the circle. Amen. I am an evangelical. Praise be to God. Because as Thomas Torrance says, even your orthodoxy is a gift of grace. Yeah? Amen. Amen to that. Okay. I am an evangelical. And one place that I believe that evangelicals have been insufficient is that we talk about the work of Christ on our behalf. His vicarious work on our behalf. Vicarious means on behalf of someone else. Talk about his vicarious work on on our behalf. What about his vicarious personhood on our behalf? What about the fact that Jesus' very taking on of humanity is the source of our salvation? There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ taking on human flesh. Whatever he has not assumed, he has not healed. That is what Gregory of Nazianzus says. If he had not taken on flesh, we would not be healed. We would still be lost in our sin. Jesus' vicarious humanity establishes who we are. And therefore, 
our incorporation into who Jesus is is the source of anything else that we are doing. Any mission that we do, any believing that we do, any worship that we do. Our doxology, our mission, our very identity is rooted in the identity of Jesus Christ. Yeah? (laughs) Good stuff. Any other thoughts, questions, anything else? Um, so how do you see that played out in like Orthodox traditions more more than like evangelical? Yeah, good question. Question. Um, let's see. I'm not sure quite how to start because um, I also want to distinguish the Anglican tradition from. Um, other evangelical traditions. Anglican tradition is clearly an evangelical tradition. Um, but one of the interesting things that there's a book by um, that was published by SPCK. I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's um, it's called The Oil of Gladness. And it's about anointment in the Christian tradition. And one of the authors in that edited volume says that um, whereas other Protestant traditions never never got to the place where they articulated a sacramental principle or a sacramental approach to life. <coughs> Anglicans did. And it goes all the way back. You can, you can read Richard Hooker, who's one of the very first Anglican theologians from the, after Henry VIII. Um, and he talks all about the fact that like, God is manifest in the material. Right? And so there's a strong, I mean, there's this incredibly strong emphasis in, on the atonement, I mean, on the incarnation at the heart of the Anglican faith. The Orthodox have it as well. So if you look at, um, you know, there's some, like, some, some schematic... Um, ways you can you can think about the story of scripture like how do you characterize it and the west tends to look at it as creation fall redemption like that's the basic strategy for reading the bible and the ortho in the orthodox tradition it's creation incarnation resurrection like that's the that's the schema and so um that's a very different approach right like that's that starts with i mean that doesn't like the fall doesn't disappear there like the incarnation presupposes a fall, right? But it's not front and center in the way that it is in the West. So I don't know if I'm answering your question very well. But so does that mean there's more of a sense of like the sacredness of the material? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So like real practically, I'm curious. This is a great, I think this is a really interesting question, actually, because I'm, I'm that's curious. Um, would you say that evangelical <coughs> traditions in comparison to Anglican folks tend to be, because um, what the implication of what you're saying, tend to be less material in terms of their understanding of their identity or the way that they're becoming in the person of Christ than Anglicans? Like, they have a less material approach to becoming part of God's covenant people? It's a rhetorical question, right? Well, no, I'm saying, like, um, for instance, does that mean you'll see oftentimes people say, well, pray and believe in your heart, like, and not your actual heart, but, like, this thing, heart. Right. And there's like this, a metaphorical heart. There's this kind of internal coming into the covenant people as opposed to Anglicans who are like, yes, and be baptized, and we're actually going to use water. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Is, there, is, there, is that what we're suggesting, that there's more of a material uh, way of demonstrating or representing what's happening? Yeah, I mean, there, there can be, and I, I don't want to say, I mean, I think it's, it's really dangerous to overgeneralize. I mean, I think, you know, great book by, have you read David Levington's Evangelicalism in Modern Britain? I think you'd really like that book, Davis. Um, but that book basically lays out what it means to be an evangelical from the 18th into the um, 20th centuries. 
And the, the like, basically what it comes down to is like, there's basically four characteristics that you can identify with evangelicals um, across this sprawling movement. But beyond that, you know, approaches to sacraments, approaches to materiality, like metaphysics, it's all kind of up for grabs. Because evangelicalism is a multi-tradition tradition, right? It's like there's just lots of different feeders into it and participants in it. What it comes down to is that evangelicals, I think by and large, tend to feel a kinship that transcends denominational barriers or traditional barriers, markers, uh, with people who, are, who have a similar approach to like conversion and the Bible and like activism, public activism. And like the cross, right? Those are the those are the things. Um, but that internally, they're very different from each other. So I don't think I can say like as a whole that evangelicals tend to dis- disparage materiality. I think I can say that evangelicals in the past, like maybe thirty or forty years, have tended to do that. They've tended to be they've tended to over spiritualize um, and not not see the value of the material in the same way. Um, and at least in America. So. Anyway. Um, but those, those are really great questions. I, I can't even remember the original question that you asked. Either. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've taken it far afield, whatever the case. So, and I didn't even answer it. I think I just, like, I think I just derailed it. <laughs> so I have, I have certain gifts for that. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'm just well, we're seeking to get hold of a reality that's really bigger than any of us can comprehend. It's true. And this thing about even labeling whatever some hundred people as evangelicals it's not it's not clear to me that that's I mean we're trying to get hold of what's there there's I, I believe there are Roman Catholics Eastern Orthodox all kinds of people walking on the earth who are I mean faithful to the Lord kind of like in Israel there were there was a good thing to get hold of, and not every, and some were were listening to God, and some weren't. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't, we're there's not some super Anglican doctrine that's just better than everything else. But aren't we <clears throat> and seeking for some reality that's not really the property of any labeled group of human beings? But we're we're kind of seeking. To, to know the Lord, our Savior, uh, our, our Absolutely. God. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, as much as is possible, you know, I think with Richard Baxter, we should, we should say, we should disparage labels and say, like, I am a mere Catholic, yeah. or even better, a mere Christian. Right? Mere Christian. Um, yes. Amen. That's actually <laughs> Baxter's quote specifically is, call me a mere, a mere Catholic, or even better, a mere Christian. Um, there's, that's absolutely the case. However, Christianity can never be practiced outside of a tradition. Have to embody it. Yeah. So we fellowship with some people. Here we are tonight. Exactly. And we, but we choose the one that we think is most um, faithful to the scriptures and to the faithful interpretation of those scriptures. So here we are, Anglicans. Um, <laughs> Um, Red Austin. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag Red Austin. Hey, Red Austin. Red Austin. Anyway. Can I move on to rooted in a, among a particular people or in a particular people? I think you need to pass out the t shirts first. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Can we just we should get a t-shirt that says rooted sacred kingdom community just to answer asking questions. But what are you talking about? <laughs> anyway. Um, and put a big question mark on uh, on the back. <laughs> question. Just like incarnation. <laughs> Alright. Um, so I mentioned that um, that what the incarnation does is not only give us something to believe, it also gives us something to do. I mean, it gives us a clue about how we're supposed to live the Christian life. Um, and I think one clue to what the incarnation tells us about how to live the Christian life is that it's the place that Jesus became incarnate. Jesus didn't become incarnate in Rome or New York City or London. He didn't become incarnate in the age of Twitter, right? Um, he became incarnate in a little backwater town called Nazareth that even the Jews were like, and anything come from this, anything good come from this place? Um, into dire poverty, into danger. What's the first thing that happens when Jesus is born? It's to flee for his life. It's to flee to Egypt so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. What scriptures, by the way? The law and the prophets and the psalms. Okay, can we get can we can we zero down a little bit more? What scriptures? Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Uh huh. Egypt, I've called my son. Which son? What's, what son is that passage talking about in the original context? You say. Israel, Moses. So what is Jesus doing? He's fulfilling the vocation of Israel once again. Doing it rightly. Irenaeus, one of the great um, early fathers, third century church father, he loved to say this. um, Jesus sanctifies every part of human life because he has taken on all of human life. So he sanctifies infancy. Can you imagine the creator of the universe soiling his diapers, screaming out for milk? Like, that's why I hate the way in a manger. Right? <laughs> I refuse to sing that. No crying he makes? Are you kidding? Of course. If he was a human, if he was a savior I want to worship, he cried. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Note to self, we can't sing the name of Well, you can. I'll just have to go wait in line. Why don't you write some better words there? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. In the Greco-Roman literature of antiquity, children were nothing. They were less than nothing. You'll never find stories about children. And yet the Bible spends all this time on a little baby, helpless, utterly incapable of taking care of himself in whom was incarnate the God of the universe. That's a remarkable thing. The value accorded to children is something that emerges within Christian tradition and nowhere else. Only there, because the God of the universe became incarnate in a little baby. Someone who could not take care of himself. And so the incarnation tells us, what does the incarnation tell us? Take care of children who are helpless. What did the early Christians do? They ran out to the trash heaps where babies were exposed and they picked them up and they took care of them. They took them in as their own children because they were like, this life has value. You know how we know? Because the God of the universe became one of these. Right? We've made saints out of the the early church saints out of of young young children who were martyred. We've held up these these children. This is a remarkable thing. Paradigm shift. 
This is a remarkable thing. What does Herod, what does Herod um, decree when the Magi come to him? Let all the baby boys be killed. Who else did that? Pharaoh. What is the Bible saying about Herod? Pharaoh. Herod is Pharaoh. Jesus is Moses. But Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is going to do it right where Moses did not. Jesus is going to be the true lawgiver. He's going to be the one who, who is the mouthpiece of God, giving us the way that we are supposed to live that is going to conduce to our flourishing and the flourishing of the world. Beautiful stuff. Irenaeus. Back to Irenaeus. He sanctifies infancy. He sanctifies the teenage years. You know, like we know nothing. We know literally nothing about Jesus' early life, except that he grew in stature and obedience to God. Like that's all we know, right? Just one verse from the book of Luke. And yet we know. And the temple in when he was 12. Experts of the law at the temple. Uh Uh-huh. He really knew the Bible. That's right. That's right. But we know that he learns in the same way that we all learn. And so he sanctifies that those like precious years of like childhood and teenagehood, right? Which are categories that don't exist in the ancient world, but you know, we'll let it go. He sanctifies adulthood. And then he sanctifies death. He makes death a place that can no longer hold terror over us anymore. Because of Good Friday and Holy Saturday, when Jesus descends to the dead, the place of death, he makes it possible. For people of faith no longer to be afraid of death. St. Athanasius and on the incarnation of the Son of God says, Here's how you know that someone is a Christian. Death no longer terrifies. We've trampled over death by death. There is a, um, a, an antiphon in the Orthodox Christian culture, Parian. It says, Christ has trampled over death by death. I take it directly from Athanasius. Beautiful stuff. So Jesus, here's what Jesus' Jesus' incarnation tells us. The people who the world says don't matter, they matter. Because Jesus was born in a backwater. This is the secret of Christianity. That an entire life poured out for one other person is worth all the gold in the universe to God. Do you believe that? As Americans, we've become really addicted to big, abstract, universal solutions. The Bible says that's BS. That's not true. The way of Jesus is a little way. A little way of little acts done with tremendous fidelity and great love. That is the Christian way. That's the way of Jesus Christ. I love, I never get tired of reciting this quote from N.T. Wright. It's from Paul in Fresh Perspective. He says, I have often reflected on the strangeness of the task to which Paul devoted his life. Telling pagans that there was a single creator God rather than a multiplicity of gods was bad enough. But adding that this God had made himself known in a crucified Jew, who, better yet, had been raised from the dead, was bound to cause shoots of derision. And if access to be believed, sometimes did. Here's the point. Yet Paul found that when he told this story, When he proclaimed that this Jesus was indeed the world's true Lord, people, to their great surprise, no doubt, found this announcement making itself at home in their minds and hearts, generating the belief that it was true. 
and transforming their lives with a strange new presence and power. People don't become Christians because we are extremely intellectually versatile or rhetorically powerful. They become Christians because the Holy Spirit aims directly at their heart and says, you will believe now because this is true. It is true that God became a human being, walked among the Jews in this backwater town, lived a life of obscurity, and died as a political criminal, and then was raised from the dead to conquer all of the enemies of humanity, so that humanity might become restored to the vocation that they originally had in the beginning, but to do so in a more marvelous way in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the secret of Christian discipleship. Always look at the person. Don't look at the program. Don't look at the results. Look at the person. Who is this person, this marvelous being, and all of his or her concreteness standing before you? That person is a wonder that you cannot even imagine. This person is a person, as C.S. Lewis famously said, in the weight of glory is either a glory that is, that is impossible to behold or a monster, a monstrosity more terrifying than we dare imagine because their fate is infinite and eternal. That is who we have to deal with, individual, concrete persons. Gerard Manley Hopkins um, wrote this amazing poem called As Kingfishers Catch, Fly, uh, sorry, as, uh, as Kingfishers Catch Fire. And um, here's what he says at the end of that. Christ plays in 10,000 places the features of men's faces. Every person that you've ever met has the potential to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, a priest in the kingdom of God, someone whose glory is unimaginable because it is eternal. And so always look to the person. Don't look to the program. Don't look to the result. Look to the person. A life that is spent on a single person is worth more than all the gold in the world. That is true. That is true because the incarnation is true. Here's what one of our heroes here at Resurrection, Michael Ramsey, says. Amidst the vast scene of the world's problems and tragedies, you may feel that your own ministry seems so small, so insignificant, so concerned with the trivial. What a tiny difference it can make to the world that you should run a youth club or preach to a few people in a church or visit families with seemingly small results. But consider, the glory of Christianity is its claim that small things really matter and that the small company, the very few, the one man, the one woman, the one child are of infinite worth to God. Consider our Lord himself. Amidst a vast world with its vast empires and vast events and vast tragedies, our Lord devoted himself to individual men and women, often giving hours and time to the very few or to one man or woman. In a country where there were movements and causes which excited the allegiance of many, the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, and others, our Lord gives many hours to the one woman of Samaria, one Nicodemus, one Martha, one Mary, one Lazarus, one Simon Peter, for the infinite worth of the one is the key to the Christian understanding of the many. You see, in Jesus' incarnation, he becomes one man 
but in becoming one man, he restores humanity to all of us. And therefore, one person matters infinitely. Particularity is almost raised to a philosophical principle in Christianity. We do not know the general, we do not know the universal by looking to abstract concepts. We know what is true universally by looking to the particulars. We look to individual people. We look to individual particular places. That's how we know the truth of Christianity is by living it out, cashing it out, infleshing it, embodying it among a people and in a place, in a time, in concrete circumstances, limited and delimited by time and space and eternity. See, we will not have glory because we have like made a name for ourselves. We will have glory because like Jesus Christ, we were faithful to the end. And that God remembers, God sees it, and he remembers it, and he raises it up to eternal life in the resurrection. It becomes part of that great city of God in Revelation 21 22. And so embodied worship matters. Embodied worship with actual people, actual Christians matters. We can't do this online. We have to have bread and wine and people doing this together. It is fundamental to the Christian faith that God creates a people for himself gathered in particular places over the centuries and in particular places and in particular times. Here's this prayer from a second century text called the Didache, which is basically a document. It's like a document saying what you should do in the church, basically what practices you should have in the church and what prayers you should pray. Here's what it says about the Eucharist. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. You see? The grains are gathered into one place and they make bread. The church is gathered into one place and makes the body of Christ. We become more as we are gathered together and constituted by this feast that we share, the Eucharist, than we can be on our own. Embodied worship matters. Embodied worship in a space matters. It matters that we live out and we practice this story over and over again in the liturgy every single week. Practicing counterformation to the rhythms and the stories of the world. We are practicing and repeating and embodying and living and being formed by the story of Jesus Christ and his church. Robert Jensen says it like this. I love it. The space for worship is the space for the enacting of a particular story. The story of Jesus as the story in which the worshipers may find their destiny. This space that we have sanctified, we have consecrated to the use for holy worship, is a space that we have dedicated to the practice of that story. That's what we're doing every single week when we practice the liturgy. I'm sure Sean will get into that next time. The parish matters. Geography matters. It matters that we live close enough to one another that we can do life together. Y'all, this is immensely countercultural in Texas, right? We all live 45 minutes away from each other. I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I'm not innocent here. I live like on the north side, right? Um, but we have to begin to push back against this. I mean, this is an imp- it's a central feature of what it means to be Christians. is to take seriously to call, the call to geographical community. We don't live two feet above our neighborhoods. We live in our neighborhoods so that we can sanctify our neighborhoods, so that we can practice the story of Jesus in our neighborhoods. 
Here's Leslie Newbegin on the parish. I do not think that the geographical parish can ever become irrelevant or marginal. There is a sense in which the primary sense of neighborhood must remain primary because it is here that men and women relate to each other simply as human beings and not in respect of their functions in society. The neighborhood matters. Geographical proximity matters. How will we take responsibility for a neighborhood if we don't live in our neighborhoods? If we live two feet above our neighborhoods, if our neighborhoods are a place that we come back to, park a car in the garage, get out, go inside, turn on the TV, we're never going to do it. It just requires too much energy and a life that's already maxed out to try to do community with people who don't live in the same geographical zone. Now, there is mercy. There is grace. There is the Holy Spirit. But this is what the Holy Spirit is telling us. The incarnation tells us that people and place matter. And that's what we're called to. All right. I've got one more section here. Anything on that? Any of that? Questions? Comments? Pushbacks? How do you take... starting to talk about place. Hmm? Starting to talk about place, or I'm moving. I'm moving us in that direction, rooted in a particular place. Well, my, my pushback is more of just delving into the practical, and maybe the next section gets into it in our culture, which is <coughs> incarnational. How do we take and push back? What parts of our culture do we shift to sh- seek to change, and what parts do we? just stand counter to, which ones do we subvert to our practical purposes? Um, just that thought of like, how do we actually get involved in people's lives when our culture is segmented and segregated? That's right. Really great question. And there are some, um, some structural difficulties, right? We have zoning ordinances that require certain kinds of building and not others that prohibit certain kinds of building structures that would enhance geographical community, actually. Um, I'm not saying this is easy. And I'm not saying this can be accomplished in a single generation. You know what the great thing about the gospel is? It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, what you set your hand to today can make a difference in the next generation. And that is a faithful work of God accomplished by you, even though you don't get the credit for it. You see, we don't have to solve every problem in our generation. It's a glorious freedom, actually. You're not the savior. We are not the saviors. We don't, we don't get to be this, the one oblation sacrificed on behalf of the world. That's already been done in Jesus Christ. But we get to be signposts to the kingdom. We get to be heralds of that kingdom. We get to be people who, who pronounce it, who get to say, this is what it looks like to live a life that is good and faithful and glorious and meaningful. You know, I, I sometimes... I get discouraged um, when I look at my like my cousins and like millennial generation and stuff like that, people that I know in the millennial generation. They seem so like they like they don't understand what they're here for. And I'm not saying my generation understood any better, right? My generation Xers like it's not like we've got it all figured out. Um, I read a, uh, a really funny article, actually, <laughs> written by a Gen X person about, like, it was a really uh, curmudgeonly article about the next generation, and it was, um, shall we say, filled with salty language. Um, so I'll censor it here. He says, uh, he says, I get the feeling that we messed up the handoff. <laughs> Let the reader understand what he was saying there. Um, and so I'm not, I'm, not blaming, I'm not blaming younger generation. What I'm saying is it breaks my heart. 
that it feels like there's such a lack of a sense of purpose. Like, what are we here for? What is it? What matters? What's essential? You can't even answer these questions anymore. And so it's our responsibility as Christians to live in such a way that we can forcefully proclaim, like, this is what it looks like to live, to live well, to flourish. And part of that's going to be geography. Part of that's going to be, like, taking people really seriously. Like, really seriously. I watched, uh, I watched the show The Walking Dead. You guys watch that show? Anyone, any of you? Am I the only person in this room watching The Walking Dead? Come on, if y'all are Christians, you're watching The Walking Dead. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's not, that wasn't real. Um, I, I do enjoy it, though. I like zombie apocalypse movie, shows and movies. I don't know why. Um, but, um, huh? Generation X. Yeah, it must be. must be. Uh, I am the generation that was, uh, was, was schooled in George Romero, I guess. Um, but I, I love the show The Walking Dead. Anyway, there's a, a guy, a character in the show named Morgan, um, and when you first encounter him, he's like, you know, he's lost his wife to the zombie apocalypse and he's taking care of his son and the son dies. And then he just kind of goes crazy and starts killing everybody and everything, all the zombies and all this kind of stuff. But he meets this guy named Eastman and Eastman is a practitioner of Aikido, which is a, uh, a pacifist martial art, which is kind of a contradictory thing. But anyway, um, he, he brings Morgan back from the brink into humanity. Hey, come on. This is like, I got to fill in the backstory, bro. I just can't just say the quote. All right. So he brings Morgan back into his humanity, right? And then, and then he gets bitten by the zombies, so he's going to die, right? And in his last moments, what he says is, everything comes down to people. Everything that's yeah. worth a damn. It all comes down to people. Isn't that right? Isn't that, isn't that right? Isn't that just sing? That is right. That is right because Jesus tells us that it's right. He shows us that that's right in his incarnation. Jonathan, can I ask, like, real practically? Yeah. I'm wondering, so we gather to worship on Sunday morning. We have, um, like, there are people that gather in homes or, like, table groups. We have guys that come over and drink brew and smoke or hang out or whatever. What, of the things that are currently happening in the life of the church, give us some, like, practical well, here's how you work out this rooted in a people and a place in the gospel. Like, here's how you can approach these mechanisms. Because they're not going to do it. They're not going to fix that in and of themselves. How do we posture ourselves and approach those things that are these consistent rhythms in the life of the community that, that give us just real easy ways of entering into what you're telling us? Yeah, that's great. Um, so I've said this before, and I don't know, um, I don't know how many of you I've said it to, but... Um, it's really interesting to read, like, Galatians 4. Because what Paul says there is that um, you have not had many fathers, but I have become your father in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's like, what is he, what is he talking about? And didn't, didn't Jesus condemn calling people fathers in Matthew? Actually, what it, what, it, what it looks like is that Paul is saying that in the church, we are a new family, right? In, uh, in Galatians, again, in Galatians 4, 26 through 28, Paul says that... Um, that uh, the, the ancient, the old Jerusalem is passing away, but we are participating in a new heavenly Jerusalem, and she is our mother, the church. And in the church, there are spiritual fathers and there are spiritual mothers. There are people that have had experience in the faith, living the faith. There are people in our midst who know what it's like to suffer for the name. They know what it's like to do that with joy. And it's time, I think, for us, for those people to take responsibility for 
younger people in our midst. I'm looking at you guys. <laughs> but um, no, I, no, but for real, like, I, I really think that, um, that we, a secular term would be mentoring. But, um, but the, the biblical term is, I think, spiritual fatherhood and motherhood. Like, we need that office exercised in the church. Like, we desperately need people who are further along in the faith to interpret our experience for us. Like, tell me what this means. I don't understand, and it hurts so badly. Like, I don't understand it. Teach me how to suffer with joy. There's a great, uh, I just sent Nikki this quote uh, a couple of days ago, but um, there's a, a 19th century Anglican monk named James O.S. Huntington. He started the Order of the Holy Cross in New York, which still exists. And um, he's, he, he was a, a wonderful um, spiritual letter writer. I mean, he just he wrote these amazing letters. Um, but w- one, of the, one of the people that he was um, writing to was suffering from this terrible illness. And he said to this woman, try to be worthy of the dignity of the suffering. Sounds kind of cruel, doesn't it? Sounds kind of cruel. It's not. Because our Messiah has been there before us. Our Messiah has suffered that was, in fact, his entire vocation, was to suffer on our behalf. And our suffering is a participation in his sufferings. And so we have to become the kinds of people who are worthy of the dignity of the suffering that God has given us to bring, him, bring us to himself. Mysteriously, this is another quote, God seems to have a preference for martyrdom. Why? Why? It doesn't make sense. We need people who are further along in the faith who have lived through some real suffering and who have come through that with a greater sense of clarity about who God is, the glory and the grandeur of God, who God is, and how suffering is actually necessary to see that, who can teach us that, who can interpret our experience for us in that way. That's one thing. I think another thing is we've got to learn how to celebrate. We've got to learn how to celebrate. Our culture knows two modes. One is like frenetic, endless work, and the other is like banal partying. Like that's all we know as a culture. We do not know how to celebrate. We do not know how to fast and prepare and like, yeah, boy, we're going to do it, man. Advent, we're going to do it right. Um, We don't know how to fast and prepare and get ready for something. And then to just have a blowout celebration that is just like celebrating all the goodness in the creation that God has given to us. We've got to learn that as a church. We've got to learn how to lament, and we've got to learn how to celebrate. And that's something we can only do with each other. That's something we can only do together. Those have got to be corporate rhythms. Those have got to be people in the church taking responsibility for other people in the church and helping, and helping them to figure it out. That make sense? On the place, then? Yeah? All right. This is the last bit. I got like 45 minutes, y'all. That's awesome. <laughs> we can keep going. I mean, that's fine. We have a, if you guys want to say more. I feel like the place discussion could kind of help me get a little more practical. Yeah. Like the part. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so I, I'm going to confess I'm a little worried about this part because I'm afraid I'm going to offend y'all. And you're just going to have to bear with me and be patient. And I promise I'm not condemning anyone. Because I, uh, I am the chief of sinners. But I'm just saying what I think is true. Okay. Here's, what, here's the next section on being rooted in a particular place. 
We live in a hypermobile time, in a hypermobile culture. Everyone is on the go. Um, there's a, a great social theorist named Zygmunt Bauman, who's a really astute interpreter of our time. Um, and he, he talks about the early phase of modernity from, say, the 16th century to the early part of the 20th century as being what he calls solid modernity. And it's basically characterized by really like heavy infrastructure, really heavy um, you know, commitment to industry and production and, um, and ideology, you know. But this is, an emplaced, this is an emplaced reality. This is something where it's like you develop a very strong sense of what it means to be German or a really strong sense of what it means to be American or, you know, so very strong nationalistic identities, right? Um, and so, so it's a very, it's, a, it's a, something that has a strong emphasis on place and culture, um, even while, like, there's, there are these formal features that are very similar across cultures. So everyone's committed to industrialization. Everyone's committed to, um, you know, a certain kind of pr- productive culture and things like that. Um, and then he says that something switches post-Second post, post Second World War. Um, and we become what he calls liquid moderns. And basically, people who no longer are attached to place. Our technology has liberated us from the necessity of place. We invent the car and we rearrange our entire culture around the automobile. Our entire built environment switches and becomes something that we can only navigate by means of this contraption that we have built. So we become, we've become enslaved by the very thing that we thought would liberate us. Okay. And, and an ideology comes with that. An ideology of placelessness. An ideology where we, where we just, like, the outside doesn't seem to matter anymore. And this, the sense that the outside doesn't matter anymore, I want to say, and Bauman doesn't go here because he's not a Christian, but I want to go here. I want to say it's a sacrament of our own internal emptiness. The fact that the outside doesn't matter is a symbol of the fact that, we, that nothing matters to us, that we have nothing that is grounding us, nothing that is rooting us. We are essentially an empty culture. We have lost what it means to be human. In, late, in the late modern West. When, when you say outside, do you mean like nature outside? No, I mean our built environment. Okay. And, and nature too. I mean, we're, we're totally callous and destructive of nature. Okay. I mean, but that's the least of our worries in some respects. I mean, like our, our built environment. Um, you know, so, so um, there's a, a bunch of books that have been written about this, but um, one of my favorites is by James Howard Kunstler. Um, he wrote a book called The Geography of Nowhere. And what he says is basically you look at anything that's been built post-war, you can't tell where you are. If someone dropped you in the middle of wherever and you didn't have any street signs to navigate, you would have no idea where you were. You couldn't tell a suburb of New York from a suburb of Atlanta. It's, it's a nowhere place. Why is that? Why is it that we have so standardized everything that we, that we build that we can reliably predict if we land in the suburb, what's going to be there? Is it going to be, you know, this housing development over here with houses that basically look the same as every other house in America, and these blocks of commercial things? You know what I mean? Like this is what we're going to find. We're going to find arterial roads. We're going to find, you know, patchwork of unconnected neighborhood streets. It didn't used to be that way. I mean, not at all. Even in our own country, uh, you know, there were. There were differences like homes in Texas don't have basements. You go to the East Coast, every house has a basement. A lot of them have finished basements. And for you know, up, up until recently, you know, yards, you know, homes here had large yards. You had a large front yard, a large back backyard, mm-hmm. and everyone would come over and play sports or have a cookout or whatever. 
and now it's all becoming you know these little patches of grass if you're lucky enough for that it's becoming the same across the board yeah Absolutely. I mean, it has been for um, at least 50 years. I mean, since the 1960s, this is really when we started building this way. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it was in the U.S., 50s, 60s, 70s, after the war, and there's all this energy, all this building, McDonald's, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then the last 30, 40 years, it's been all over the world. Yeah. China, Russia, yeah. et cetera. Absolutely. But notice... That when we try to, like, when we recognize that something has gone desperately wrong in the way that we built, we try, we've tried to restore something like the built environment that preceded that, the pre-war environment. And what have we done? What have we made? We've made places that are still soulless and indistinguishable from other places. It's like every new urbanist build-out looks just like every other new urbanist build-out. It's like there's a blueprint here and a blueprint there, and it doesn't matter. It's like... Something has gone desperately wrong inside of us that makes us build this way. You know, it makes us accustomed to living in this way. Now, I'm not saying, and, and please hear me. This is where, this is where I, um, I'm really keen on not, not being misunderstood. Hold on. Where did the um, recorder go? Oh, you got it. Okay, good. <laughs> like, like, it's gone. I don't anyway, um, I'm, not, I'm not condemning anyone for living in either the city or the suburbs or anything. Like, but this, this quote, I think, epitomizes um, what I'm trying to get at here. So um, this guy, H.W. Page, um, wrote an essay called Leave If You Can in a book called Rooted in the Land. And here's the quote. There are people, products of modern times, with little or no sense of place. These are the rootless ones. There are people of the suburbs, those places of interchangeable parts, strung like beads on a commuter line. One such place is much like another, and sometimes the only way you can tell your home from your neighbors is by the color of the front door. Such people move from place to place as their careers or their wishes dictate. They are places for the nomad heart. Deep within, they suffer the malaise of the fugitive heart. The nomad heart is really powerful language. We move from place to place. We just we basically consume a place and then move on to the next one. We consume jobs. We consume people. And we leave them. Um, Walker Percy put it this way. Lost in the cosmos. We render them excreta. Um, we, we, we empty them of all meaning. And then we have to move on. right? Um, because we're bored. Because we're restless. Because we don't know how to be in a place. I sometimes think that the chief deadly sin of modernity is asadia. Do you guys know what asadia is? So, um, weariness of the soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like metaphysical boredom. Um, so, okay. So in the in the the, the third and fourth centuries, um, there were all of these lay Christians that looked at the state of the church and they were like, "It's corrupt. It's bankrupt." We gotta, we've got to find a better place, better soil to do the Christian life. So they moved out to the desert outside of, in the outskirts of um, the cities of Egypt. And um, there were so many of them that Jerome, uh, St. Jerome said um, that the desert has become a city. <laughs> There's so many of them, right? Um, and so they, they, there they practiced these spiritual disciplines and they accrued all of this amazing wealth of spiritual knowledge. And a lot of the knowledge that they um, put together um, was uh, was sort of compiled by this guy, Bagrius of Pontus. 
And um, he's the first person to give us something like a list of the deadly sins, right? Um, but they're not... Deadly sins is the wrong word. It's something, something better to characterize them as something like the capital vices. Like, these aren't the worst things you can do, but they're the sources of all the bad things that come, right? Um, so they're sort of like the fountainhead. And in Evagrius's list, there are eight of these. He calls them sad thoughts, the logismoi. Sad thoughts. I like that, <laughs> like that language. Um, but the, the worst one of them for him, the one that, that most besets the monk, um, is the sin of Asadia. And asadia is something, like I said, something like metaphysical boredom. It's like a boredom with your very existence. And um, he says that it besets the monk around the ninth hour and doesn't leave until, uh, until about 3 o'clock, right? Um, and, uh, and so basically during this time, um, the monk will leave his cell and look up at the sky and the sun is not moving. And it feels like the day is 50 hours long. And he consistently is looking for distractions. You know, he's leaving his cell, not praying, so he can find a distraction. He tries to find somebody to talk to. Um, he, he hates his life. He comes to think that charity has left the brethren, right? He's, he's just like, everything is horrible. And, and it's it, like, if I could just get out of here, if I could just find an easier place to live, all of my problems would be solved. Isn't that selling modernity to you? Here's what Evagrius says about the temptation to Asadia. He says that when it leaves you, no other temptation takes hold, but one is left with only inexpressible joy. And how does one combat Asadia, according to Evagrius? Here's the solution. The moment of temptation is not the moment to leave one's cell. A while back, um, I was going through a really hard time here in Austin. And um, I just wanted to leave. Like, I just, I hate this place. Like, I don't like the city. It's ugly. It's, it's suburban, blah, blah. I hate it. I don't want to live here. I hate everybody here. Everything's horrible. And so I was, like, applying jobs everywhere. And... Um, I discovered Evagrius, and I saw what Evagrius said, and I, and I, I thought, oh, man, Austin <coughs> is my cell. <laughs> um, yeah. I had this nomad heart, this heart that was characterized by Asadia. Um, I still have that. You know? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that one ever truly conquers it. Um, and I think everything about the way we live as modern people, you know, all of the distractions and the screens and technology and all, all the shiny stuff, it basically is designed to stoke Asadia. The only solution to Asadia is to put your head down and do what you're supposed to do. Be faithful. Stay in the same place. It's the only solution. It's the one thing that feels impossible, and it's the only thing that is a cure. If we do that, so uh, if, we, if we remain in place, there's a guy named Craig, Bar- I already mentioned Craig Bartholomew. He has this, uh, this concept that he calls placial stability. He says, like, like, here's the problem with middle class people and modernity. We just leave. You know, we, we get dissatisfied with the job. We get dissatisfied with people. We just leave. We're done. Discipleship in such a context looks like placial stability. Just stay put. Devote yourself to the place that you're in. Make it beautiful. Like, adorn the place that you live with beauty. Like, make it a place... Like, okay, we live in a patchwork of suburban plots. Make it a place that birds would like to come to. You know? Plant flowers. Watch butterflies come in. Watch the bees come. You know? 
Like one of, one of the theories that I heard about the colony collapse syndrome that people were really worried about a few years ago was that people had just stopped planting flowers. They weren't planting flowers. The bees, had, the bees would have to travel ex, ex, like extensive distances to find nectar to bring back to their hives. Now, I'm sure it was more than that. But that was one of the, one of the factors that, that people were saying was responsible for this. And, um, and I thought to myself, I've never planted a flower. <laughs> How many have you planted since? A few. <laughs> Not as many as I should be for the big game I'm talking right now. Can we count them on one hand? Yes, you can. <laughs> All right. Once again, I, I've said this already tonight. I am not speaking as like a uh, an expert. I'm speaking as an advocate. I'm not speaking as someone who's like figured this out. I'm speaking as someone who's like looking at what's happening in the Bible and looking at the history of Christian tradition and saying like, here's what it looks like, people. How are we going to do this together? You know, we want to see Austin transformed. We need to dedicate ourselves to a place like make it beautiful, make it as good as it can possibly be in our generation. So that we become known as people that are like all about the common good. Like we could not be more for the common good if we tried. Like that's what it would look like to exercise faithful discipleship. Devote ourselves to a place. Frederick Nietzsche, otherwise the enemy of the Christian faith in every every respect, (laughs) has a really wonderful quote. The essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. I'll read it again. I should like put this somewhere up there. It would be, wouldn't that be funny? Put this quote up somewhere. Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> the church of Frederick Nietzsche. You know, we worship the will. Okay. How many people would leave our church? There we go. But how many would come in? <laughs> the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something which has made life worth living. What if we spent the rest of our lives devoting ourselves to a place, a very particular place, not Austin, not devoting ourselves to Austin, but like 78745, that bounded region below 290 and above Slaughter? Like that's where we're going to pour all our energies. <coughs> Well, let's plant a church in 78739. What do you think about that? Or 78748. What if we planted a church in 78748? We did. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, think with me, people here. If we're going to be a church that takes ownership over a geographical space, shouldn't we be a church that plants churches in the spaces where our people live? Okay, like right now, we are one of two Anglican parishes in Austin. Okay, like we have to do what we have to do. But shouldn't it be a long-term goal of ours to plant neighborhood churches that take ownership of neighborhoods? We say, like, this is our place. These are our people. This is the parish God has given us. We're, like, going to town. I, was, uh, I wrote a, an essay on teaching the 1662 Book of Common Prayer this last week. <laughs> so terrible, dude. <laughs> and exactly, you know, I thought that when I started writing this, I was like, this is going to be, I can't, I can't even imagine what I'm going to say in this essay. It was, like, excruciating. But then I discovered this really interesting piece of information. So there's a a little preface at the beginning of the Book of Common Prayer called Concerning the Ceremonies of the Church. And it says in that, in that, uh, that little preface that priests and deacons are to say the morning and evening daily offices every day, either openly, that is publicly, or privately. How would they say them openly? They have parishes. 
They have parishes. They're going to go and open the parish, and they're going to say or sing the, the daily office, morning and evening. Huh. And it suddenly struck me that our pastoral imaginations need to be renewed such that we could imagine actually calling a people together to say or sing the daily office every day. Wouldn't that be so dope if we could do that as a church? What would that look like? How would we do it? I don't know how we would do it. Maybe we would gather in clusters of people who live around each other. You know, We can't do that. Like We can't do it here at Eden Park Academy. It's too far for most people. Traffic's horrible. But if there's enough of us that live close to one another geographically, we could do that. We could become, we could be the church in this person's house, saying or singing the daily office. That would be amazing. What would it look like if we did that over enough time that we became formed by it? We would come to long for that. It would, we would feel its absence if it were missing. How would that sanctify our homes? How would that sanctify the places in we live? How would we like, then be challenged to invite our neighbors to stuff, to get to know them and explain why we're doing this weird thing? You know? I don't know. Um, I don't don't have much more to say on this front, except that this one thing. In the history of the Western Church, no one has devoted themselves to place more than the Benedictine monks. One of the vows the Benedictines took was to stability. And at the very beginning of the rule of St. Benedict, Benedict um, spends this, like, lengthy period of time, longer than feels like, Warranted and definitely longer than is comfortable excoriating different kinds of monks. He's like, these monks all suck. They're the worst kinds of monks. <laughs> and basically the characteristic of all of them and why they all suck is that, is that they, they, they move around all the time. They're like, they, they go to one spot and they do some work for a while and they're like, I hate this place and they move. And Benedict is like, that's like faithless. That's like the worst. That's the worst. You know? Like you just can't follow God in that, in that context. <laughs> My monks are going to stay put. For a lifetime. Like we're going to be here forever. Um, and so, that, so this commitment to stability yielded some really interesting things. The Benedictines would go into some random place. They'd start a monastery. And like people knew the Benedictines are just going to be there doing their work. Saying their prayers. Building architecture that's really interesting and befitting the land. And then people started to move in right around the monasteries. They started to create cities around the monasteries. All over Europe, there's a patchwork of small towns and cities built around Benedictine monasteries. Like new culture, new life, new imaginations structured around a place because of the faithful stability of a people. It's pretty dope. Our residency program, in which John Tucker is one of the priors, is inspired by this. We are inspired by Benedictine spirituality. So one of our commitments in the residency program is to, is to placial stability. Um, we think that if we dedicate ourselves to that, that something really interesting could happen. I want that to fire our imaginations too as a church. That's all I got. Any any uh, thoughts or questions or pushback? Well, I just thought, I thought it was interesting when you talked about what is it? Asadia. Asadia. A C E D I A. Okay. Um, one of the did you say remedies is to just put your head down and do the next thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've said that during the past year. Mm. People have asked me, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm just putting my head down and I'm doing the next thing. So I just thought, thank you for <laughs> you know, making that seem important because um, that's just kind of 
Yeah. yeah so. Because, because I mean, it, it seems like really simplistic on one hand, but if you think about it on the other, Tish and I were talking recently. I, I really want, we talked about, we had this conversation and I was like, that's your next book right there. You're going to write that next. Um, <laughs> we just talked about like becoming, becoming 30 something and how our lives have just worked out so dramatically differently and in many ways worse than we would have imagined when we were 20 something. Right. It was like, like very different than our hopes, right. Very different than our expectations. And, um, and so, you know, there's really only three possible responses to that. You can't just keep going in the same direction you were when you were 20. Like you either burn out, you do something stupid, right? Like go have an affair, do whatever. Or you numb out. You start self-medicating with alcohol, drugs, watch TV all the time, do whatever, look at porn, whatever it is. I don't know what it is. But the, like you, one of those two things, or you go deep, you know? You, you like faithfully put your head down and you keep moving and you learn how to pray. Those are your options, right? That's pretty much it, yeah. Yeah. And that's not... That's not superficial and that's not shallow. That's like the whole substance of the Christian life. There's a pretty dramatic quote by St. Basil the Great. He says, um, here's his definition of the human being. The human being is an animal that has been been given the vocation to become God. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. Here it is. A human being is an animal that has been given the vocation to become God. Okay. All right. Now, after I've like stepped back from the precipice of idolatry and that, and that thought, what, what does that really mean? That means to become, to be an animal that is conformed to the image and likeness of God in Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like. And so that means that we become a person whose whole life, whose very existence is prayer. There's a wonderful essay by uh, theologian Hans Urs von, von Balthasar. He writes about the fathers and he says, of them all, it is true of what Kierkegaard said of John Chrysostom. He gesticulated with his whole existence. What would it look like to be the kind of person whose very life is a prayer, just a breathed out prayer? One of the desert fathers was approached by um, Abba Poyman, uh, was approached by one of his acolytes, one of his um, disciples. And the disciple said, you know, I've done my little prayer, I've done my little fast, and then all these little things. What should I do next? And Abba Poyman says, like, holds his hands up, and they, they, they all, like, burst into flame, like any guy doesn't flame. And he says, if you will, you can become entirely fire. In other words, like, your whole life can become prayer. Your whole life can become saturated with the divine life. Like, that's our vocation. Leon Bloy, one last quote. He says, the only tragedy in this life is not to be a saint. Yeah? That's what we're called to, people. That's the life that we're called to. Not a life that's, like, flashy and, like, full of celebrity and, and like, excitement. It's a life of faithfulness in which we, become, we take on the grandeur and glory of God. In a time, in a place, among the people. John, you began this class talking about how this is an exploration of a value for our community. Can you just take all of that and Compress. process it onto the, in the ground? Like, how is our congregation, how is this community experimenting with these values? And we see them maybe as like table groups or programs. Yeah. We see the, the kind of the result, but 
can you just give us some perspective of how we as a community are trying to actually take this seriously yeah. and experiment to give us some light in our Totally. Head? Yeah, that's great. Really helpful. Focus question. You take me down to the ground. I like that. Who meets the road? Okay. Um, so here's what I want to say. Like, the incarnation, as I began this class by saying, is not just, like, one doctrine among others. It's, like, totally central. Like, it's the grid within which we understand the Christian faith. And so this value of rootedness, like, we're, we're, like, allowing it to take shape in light of the incarnation. Like, we think it's a value that emerges from the incarnation, and as we explore it, the incarnation is the, is the light by which we explore it, right? And so every decision that we want to make as a church is somehow related to this idea of rootedness. And like I said also at the beginning, I don't think that what I've talked about here remotely exhausts it, but I think these are like three themes that we could explore when we talk about rootedness. So rootedness in the gospel, rootedness in um, among a people or in a people, and rootedness in a place. Like, I think those are all things that we should be thinking about. Like, those are themes we should be thinking about when we think about rootedness. And so one way in which our congregation has been trying to flesh this out is by creating this residency program. We just, it just so happened that God gave us, like, a handful of people who are, who are thinking about, you know, what, what, am I called to ministry? What is my next vocational step supposed to look like? And how do I even go about discerning, you know? Um, and we thought, all right, like, rootedness has got to be part of that. Like, the residency should take on some characteristics of the Benedictine tradition because the Benedictines show us what rootedness looks like in the people in a place and in the gospel, in the life of prayer. Um, table groups are another expression of this. We're taking really seriously, like, individual people that God calls to us. We're, like, pouring our lives out into these people over food and fellowship. We're learning how to lament. We're learning how to celebrate together. Our, our very life as a church, our corporate life as a church, is composed by liturgical rhythms, which are rhythms of fasting and feasting. I don't know if you noticed this, but there's never a celebration in the life of our church that's not preceded, a grand celebration in the life of our church that's not preceded by a fast. So before Christmas, we have Advent. Before Easter, we have Lent. We always have that rhythm of fasting and feasting because we're learning together what does it look like to practice the story of Jesus Christ appropriately so that we can see our lives by that light. And the only way that we can do that is by preparing ourselves and then experiencing the joy of the gospel. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.